For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, so we're going to be looking at the life of Lot. And um, like I mentioned, this is really a study of radical versus convenient faith. You know, when you look at Abraham and Lot, it really becomes kind of a study of two different ways of following God. You know, not everyone who follows the Lord experiences the fullness of Christ. It's odd when you encounter some people, it seems like they bear spiritual fruit, they make progress in their spiritual lives, and then you look at other people who are genuine believers in Christ, and yet it seems like they're stuck, that they aren't really making much progress. Year year after year goes by, and it seems like they haven't really grown into maturity in Christ. And really, when you look at Abraham and Lot's life, it sort of embodies this. Both of these guys believed in God, and yet their lives form a striking contrast between spiritual victory and defeat. You know, a little quick rundown of Abraham's life. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we studied Abraham, this man of faith, first of all, you know, he left behind his comfort and security. God calls him from this land called Ur and he says, get up and go. And I want you to travel in this direction here. And so Abraham decides that he's going to uproot his family. He's going to leave the comfort of his home. And he's going to move in this unknown direction. And, you know, you can imagine how difficult that must have been. You know, place yourself in his shoes. That would have been really hard to just get up and follow God wherever he says we should go. Leaving behind everything that we regarded as our security. And also we see that over time he slowly loosened the grip of control of his life and surrendered it to God. You know... God was like, I want you to get up and go. And I'm sure that Abraham was like, okay, so where? And God was like, that way. And, you know, most of the time we want a blueprint of what God plans to do with us before we're willing to follow. And yet that represents our desire to try to control the situation. We want to control our own lives. We don't want to be put in a position where somebody else is controlling us. And so it's very difficult for us to follow God, to trust Him, because we want to grasp onto control. And yet, radical faith means that we are able to trust in God's character, that He is somebody who loves us, that He wants to provide for us, and that He knows what's best for our lives. And that's what gives us the confidence to move forward with radical faith. Also, we see that he clung to God's promises. You know, God came to him at numerous times during his life. And he reaffirmed this promise he gave to him in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all of the nations are going to be blessed through your descendants. Not to mention, I'm going to give you this land, this area where you and your descendants are going to occupy. And so he clung on to that, even though for most of his life, 
He was living as a, a complete nomad. Indeed, he never really received the promised land during his life. You know, as, when his wife Sarah finally died, he actually had to purchase a plot of land within the promised land in order to bury her. And yet the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10, that uh, even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. So what kept Abraham moving forward, believing in God, was his faith that he would trust in God And that there was this eternal city that he was looking forward to. And in the meantime, he lived like a resident alien. You know, somebody who was just moving through the desert like a nomad. Interestingly, uh, this word here, uh, foreigner, that's the word in Greek, xenos. And that's where we get the word xenos from. And so... It describes a way of life where we're just sort of passing by. We're not getting attached to this world and the things of this world, but we're looking forward to something better, something that God has promised us. So it turns out Abraham was the original Xenoid, not Dennis and Gary. And we're told that all these people, Abraham and Sarah, died still believing what God had promised them. They didn't receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. And they agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. And so Abraham clung to the promise of God, even though he didn't see it in this life. Now, by contrast, we see that Lot's life begins the same way as Abraham's, where he gets up with Abraham and goes in the direction that Abraham is moving toward. And yet, from that point forward... Things diverge. We read, Abram left Egypt and traveled north to the Negev, along with his wife and Lot and all they own. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also became very wealthy with flocks and sheep and goats, herds of cattle and many tents. So these guys were very wealthy. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not let this conflict come between us and our herdsmen. After all, we're close uh, relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want and we'll separate. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land to the right. If you want to go right, I'll go left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt going towards Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them, and he went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. Okay, now... I want to sort of take you on a, on a side tangent here. I think it's kind of important. It's interesting that Moses, the author of Genesis, really the first five books of the Old Testament, says that it's like the land of Egypt going towards Zoar. 
I don't know if um, you have taken a Bible as lit class in college, but one of the things they'll teach you is what's known as the JEDP theory, or sometimes it's referred to as the documentary hypothesis. And this theory suggests that Moses didn't actually author the first five books of the Old Testament, but that there were multiple authors who contributed to writing the first five books of the Old Testament, but it happened hundreds and in some cases a thousand years after the time of Moses. So Moses actually didn't write this, but it was people who were writing as if it was Moses. And really, these, these groups or schools of authors would insert their own emphasis into the text. So, for example, uh, P in JEDP refers to the priestly order. And they were trying to establish priesthood, and so they added a lot of the stuff that we see in Leviticus and anything that refers to the priests or the sacrificial system. And so, obviously, the implication would be that the first five books of the Old Testament contains tons of historical errors and anachronisms because it was written by people living hundreds of years after uh, when it was purported to have been written. And, you know, it's interesting that when these, uh, these uh, scholars who put forward this theory first propose it, that it actually enjoyed widespread acceptance for most of the 20th century. And yet, in more recent times, the consensus has actually collapsed. And yet, when you go to a university and you take a Bible as lit class, most of the professors will teach this theory as if it's still the overwhelming consensus among scholars. Now, that brings us to this point right here. It's interesting that he says, the author, Moses, says it's like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. So Zoar was an ancient city or locale located in the Nile Delta Valley, so in Egypt. And he's trying to describe the Jordan Valley in terms that his, in his audience would, would be able to understand. Because remember the nation of Israel had never been to the Jordan Valley at this time. They, they were in Egypt for like 400 years. And they were wandering around in the desert. And so if you've ever been to Israel, the Jordan Valley region is like one of the most prominent areas of, of Israel's terrain. I mean, it's, it's the most, I mean, it, it's, it dominates the landscape. And so really... There are two options here, right? Either the author is trying to describe for his audience an area that they've never seen by using terms or a geography that they would have been familiar with in Egypt, or this was written by an author or authors hundreds of years later, but with the intention of trying to get future audiences to believe that this was actually written by Moses hundreds of years earlier. And that's a pretty cynical way of thinking about the text. You know, imagine the author is sitting down trying to figure out how he's going to write this, and he's like, 
hmm, now, how can I write this in such a way that people are going to think that Moses actually wrote this hundreds of years earlier? Oh, I get it. I'm going to say it's like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. That way people will think that these people have never actually been to the Jordan Valley. That's really cynical. And we actually would never read any ancient text this way. And so the way I look at it is this really gives a mark of authenticity. That this was actually written by Moses at the time when it was purported to have been written in the 1400s B.C. We're also told that Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord. So he looks up and he sees this lush valley. And we know a little bit about Sodom and and this Jordan plain. First of all, it was a city brimming with opportunities. Jesus actually gives us sort of a thumbnail of what activities were going on in Sodom. In Luke 17, verse 28, he says people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. People are engaged in commerce. Business was booming. The city was actually growing. You know, new buildings were, were, were shooting up all over the place. Not to mention, it was a, like a town where they were known for its fine dining. And they probably had great nightlife too. You know, there were drinking parties. And so Sodom represented sort of a metropolitan city. It was maybe kind of the center of finance and nightlife. And with hard work and a will to succeed, you could earn a fortune in this city. Remember, Lot was already very wealthy before he entered into Sodom, settled there. And so he might have been thinking to himself as he saw this well-watered valley, he thought to himself, this is just my next step to be able to increase my wealth, my net worth. You know, materialism was rampant in this city. We know that the residents of Sodom turned a blind eye to the poor who lived there. In Ezekiel 16, verse 49, we're told, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they didn't help the poor and needy. And so there was a huge divide between the rich and the poor, and we're told that the rich were unconcerned about the poor and probably mistreated them as well. You know, in many ways, you look at Lot, and he resembles many modern Christians. In America. You know, they talk a lot about God, but when you look at their lives, it's very clear that the world shapes their values and their decision making more than the things of God. You know, you see many Christian people today who materialism, careerism, that drives them. And often they'll make decisions for their family, they're willing to uproot their family for the sake of chasing a career opportunity or a job that's going to pay way more money. And they don't care whether or not it takes a toll on their family, whether it takes a toll on their spiritual health, or whether or not it impacts their spiritual community. They just can't turn down this great opportunity. Well, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. 
But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. We're going to find out just all the different things that Sodom was engaged in. We talked a couple weeks ago about how in this locale, many of the people actually worship gods who required child sacrifice. And there was rampant sexual immorality, as we'll see. Now, fast forward 25 years, and uh, Abram is still camping out in the desert. And he manages to settle in in this oak grove of Mamre. These three guys show up out of the blue. Turns out they're actually angels of the Lord. And Abram realizes this and actually decides to cook them a meal. At the, at the conclusion of the meal, two of the guys get up and they head in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of them stayed and, and the text actually indicates that this person was the angel of the Lord. Which whenever you see that reference in the Old Testament, that typically is a reference to the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And so he has this interaction with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 18. The Lord told Abram, I heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Pretty bold. Talk to the Lord that way. Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? You'd be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare the entire city for their sake. So um, the Lord agrees. And I think it's, it's interesting to note, too, that Abram shows concern for the whole city, not just his family. You know, Lot lives there, and obviously he's concerned for Lot's welfare, but he's concerned about the people living there as well because they're in rebellion against God. And already we see at this time that Abraham actually is starting to develop the same heart that God has for people not wanting to see people perish. Well, then Abraham spoke again, since I've begun, let me speak further, my Lord, even though I'm but dust and ashes. Suppose there's only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will he destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And the Lord said, I won't destroy it even if I find 45 righteous people there. Abraham pressed his request further. What about 40? And the Lord replied, I won't destroy it even for the sake of 40. Don't get angry with me, Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, okay, 30, I won't destroy it. Then Abraham said, since I've dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there's only 20 left. And the Lord replied, okay, I won't destroy it even for the sake of 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. I'm sure the Lord was just like, dude, okay, you need to shut up. <laughs> Suppose only ten are found there. And the Lord said, I won't destroy it even for ten. Now, I think it's interesting that there's this interaction between God and Abraham 
some people raise questions about this account because it seems to contradict what some call God's immutability. It's kind of a big word. But God's immutability refers to his unchanging nature. So it seems a little bit weird that if God has a will that he's determined in advance that a mere person, a man or a woman, could actually work God down from like, you know, 50 to 10 people. But I think that what God is doing here is, you know, he knows how many people here are actually righteous. And he knows what he's going to do. Because God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. But God has this interaction with Abraham to demonstrate something about his character. He's not only immutable, he's also compassionate. That God doesn't want to see people judged. In fact, he he refers to his judgment as his, his strange work. Something that he doesn't want to do. And so, he allows this interaction to happen because he wants to communicate to us that he is a God of mercy, that he's a God of love. Well, we turn to Genesis 19. Remember the two guys who are walking in the direction of Sodom. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed his face to the ground. He must have realized these guys weren't mere men. They were actually angels of the Lord. Um, We're told that Lot was actually sitting at the entrance of the city gates. You know, this indicates that Lot probably held a prominent position in the city. We know that the councilmen of the city would often convene at the, at the city gates. For example, if you look at Proverbs 31, the famous proverb about the godly woman, they refer, the author refers to this woman as uh, her, her husband as somebody who actually stood at the city gates. Her husband it says, was well-known at the city gates where he sits with the other civic leaders. So Lot, in addition to being a very wealthy person and probably by this time increased his net worth because Sodom was such a, a, a wealthy city, a land of opportunity, he not only added to that, you know, this political power and influence. And so things were going pretty well for Lot in Sodom. He'd grown comfortable in this city. he gained this prominent position. And he enjoyed lots of wealth. My lords, he said to them, come, to my, come home to uh, wash your, my home and wash your feet and be my guest for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. And they said, oh no, we'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted, so they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread, made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, both young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Uh, yeah. It's, uh... 
So, you know, Lot and uh, his guests are enjoying this uh, nice meal, quiet meal. And uh, the men of the city, both young and old, I mean, the text doesn't specify how young these people were, but I mean, it just goes to show the level of depravity. And they were calling for these men so that they could uh, essentially rape them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. I'm sure he probably had his hands you know, out to try to protect his guests. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. In ancient Near Eastern culture, and even today in the Near East, whenever somebody comes into your home, you are obligated to protect them. And so Lot was standing up for these guys, pleading with the, the men of the city, not to take them. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone for they're my guests and they're under my protection. You know, this just goes to show that Lot was drowning in the values of his culture. He was more concerned in trying to uphold this cultural moray rather than the safety of his daughters. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to this town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge? They're calling him out for his hypocrisy that, you know, you made your wealth here, you, you've grown in your, your prominence as a, as a political figure. You've been fine with the way we've been living, and now you're going to come and judge us? We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged toward Lot to break down the door. But the two angels reached out and pulled Lot into the house and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. So these angels miraculously struck these men blind. Now, it says, so they gave up trying to get in, uh, inside the house. This is the New Living Translation. I don't think it actually captures what, what was actually going on here. The New English Translation says, the men outside wore themselves out trying to find the door. They were determined to take these men. And they were groping around the darkness trying to find their way into Lot's door. They were just completely undeterred. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city, they asked? Get them out of this place, your sons-in-laws, your sons, daughters, or anybody else. For we are about to destroy this city completely. And the outcry against this place is so great it has reached the Lord and he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancé, he's probably escaping through the back door, quick, get out of the city, the Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought that he was only joking. Or in other translations, they laughed at him. It's not clear why they did this. Maybe they thought to himself, themselves, you don't seem that eager to leave the city. It must not be that dangerous. Or maybe Lot, because of his compromise, had lost the moral latitude to be able to speak authoritatively, even to his family. And so we see that the compromise of Lot's life started to trickle down to even his family. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, the angels seized his hand 
and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. We read that Lot hesitated. You know, on the one hand, he decried the sins and the, and the immorality of the city, but on the other hand, he found himself very comfortable and at home in this city where he had made a great amount of money, where he was able to climb the political ladder and reach this level of prominence. And so Lot clung to his life in Sodom, even though he knew that God was going to destroy it. When they were safely outside of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Oh no, my Lord, Lot begged. You've been so gracious to me. You've saved my life and you've shown me such great kindness, but I can't go up to the mountains. Disaster would catch up to me there and I would soon die. See, there's a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. He's like, just spare this small city. He was just, he was trying to hold on to anything that he could, that he could possibly grasp onto in his life in Sodom. All right, the angel said, I'll grant your request. I won't destroy that little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you've arrived there. This explains why that village is known as Zoar, which means little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. I don't even know what that looks like. I'm sure in the aftermath of this, there were like deer surrounding it and just licking it, you know. But it's interesting that it said that Lot's wife looked back. And in Hebrew, this word actually carries the connotation of to gaze intently or longingly. So again, we see that Lot's compromise wasn't just a matter of his own personal life and his own spiritual condition, but that this actually influenced his family as well that it led to the compromise even of his wife. Abraham got up that next morning and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. And so there you have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a pretty sad account. Well, there's also a very sad and um, pretty gross postscript to all of this as well. God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. Afterward, Lot left Zoar because he was afraid of the people there, and he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. So he ended up in the mountains anyway. Remember, he requested that God spare this little city because he didn't want to go to the mountains. And yet he settled in the mountains, which really exposes the lame excuse that he was giving. His real motivation was that he wanted to stay in Sodom. He wanted to try to, 
to salvage any piece of his life that he could possibly have. Well, one day the older daughter said to her sister, there are no men left anywhere in this entire area, and so we can't get married like everybody else, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine, and then we'll have sex with him. That way we'll preserve our family line through our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. Savage. Oh. You know, again, this speaks to the compromise that really spread throughout his entire family. His daughters were willing to go to any extent in order to preserve this family line, even sleeping with their father. You know, really, Lot's compromise took a toll on his kid's spiritual life. And you see this a lot with uh, a lot of, you know, Christian parents who talk about the things of God and yet their lives don't reflect it. And the really negative thing that, that comes from this is that a lot of times their children see the hypocrisy and in many cases it turns them off from Christianity. They see their parents compromise and then they, they weigh that with their words and they see that those two things are at odds and so they think to themselves, this Christianity thing, this is not for me. In the worst case scenario, they actually follow in the footsteps of their parents by becoming compromised Christians themselves. Well, the next morning, the older daughter said to her younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and then you can go in and have sex with him too. That way we will preserve our, fam our family line through our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine again and the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him as before and he was unaware of her lying down or getting up. And as a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. Okay, I know that the text says that he was unaware of their lying down or getting up, but it's really hard to imagine a man getting so drunk that he doesn't know that he is sleeping with his own daughter. And then doing it again the next night with his other daughter. It's just really hard to imagine. Well, when the older daughter gave birth to the son, she named him Moab. And he became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Ben-Ami. And he became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Ammonites. Now, the Moabites and the Ammonites have a legacy of really leaving a mark on the nation of Israel. Uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites were really their enemies throughout their history. They, the, the Israelites fought with them uh, for hundreds of years. We also know that in Numbers 25, that Moabite women actually seduced a number of Israelite men and actually got them to worship one of their gods, Baal Peor. And then the Ammonites, they were responsible for the worship of Molech, one of the Canaanite gods that we were referring to who required child sacrifice. And we know that the, the nation of Israel at times throughout their history actually engaged in this as well. Well, when you look at Lot and evaluate his life, 
his life represents a bitter tale of spiritual defeat. I mean, it's really hard to, to exaggerate how far he had fallen in his spiritual life. You know, he thought he had his life together. He thought things were great in Sodom. He thought that he could turn a blind eye to the compromise that uh, was slowly creeping into his life and into his family life. And really, his value system was largely based upon selfishness, comfort, and materialism. That's what drove him in his life. And you know, you see this so often, even with many Christians today. They claim to live radically for God, and yet when you look at their values... Most of it seems by, driven by comfort and the desire to have more and more money and possessions. Really, his compromise spread to his family, as we, as we saw throughout this narrative. And so really, you could look at Lot and Abraham's life as two contrasting pictures of convenient faith and radical faith. You know, with Lot, or with Abraham, you know, he left behind his security in earth. When God said, get up and go, he followed. Lot had the same start. God called him as well. And he left behind his security in Ur and followed God. But from this point, things diverged dramatically between their lives. Abraham followed a way of life that depended on God to reward him later. Whereas Lot followed a way of life that delivered results, uh, rewards immediately. You know... It must have bothered him that he left his security. And so he sought that security, that financial security, that comfort in Sodom, in the Jordan Plain. You know, with Abraham, instead of looking for ways around God's will, he actually sought to follow him more. We're going to see an account next week where Abraham really goes to the limit of faith. You know, God calls him to do something that most of us, would never imagine doing. And yet, because of of Abraham's radical trust in God, he was able to do it. Whereas with Lot, he thought he could get away with living on the fringe of God's will. And this really is, this represents so many Christians today who are always trying to find the middle ground. You know, they don't want to ever get too carried away with the God stuff. They want to try to keep things in balance in their life. You know, on the one hand, they want to live faithfully for God, but on the other hand, they're they're pursuing with their heart material things and the acclaim of people. And Jesus claims that there's no way for you to follow both God and someone else or something else. That you're going to have to choose or that eventually you're going to end up defaulting on following something other than God. And that's exactly what happened with Lot. You know, with Lot, he was unable to lead his family or anyone else with his passivity. You know, he wanted to live a comfortable life. He just wanted to enjoy his wealth. You know, he didn't want to rock the boat and have people in his culture make fun of him or to stick out as a, you know, like a sore thumb because he was living for God. He's probably afraid to weigh in with his kids too, relationally, and his wife because of his compromise. Whereas Abraham, his family wasn't without problems. They had a lot of issues, but they adopted his value system, and for the most part, they lived faithfully for God. 
with Lot, his life ended in a catastrophic and miserable state of disintegration and sin, whereas with Abraham, his life ended as one of the most impactful and important lives ever lived. You know, we mentioned a couple weeks ago how half the world claims its spiritual lineage and draws that back to Abraham. And, you know, Abraham died as a relatively obscure figure during his, life, during his time. With Lot, he stands for what happens when you draw a line in the sand based on distrust toward God. Where you'll only follow God to the extent that it's convenient for you. When it doesn't cause you to sacrifice anything. When it doesn't push you to go beyond what you feel comfortable doing. Whereas with Abraham, he stands as an example of how radical trust leads to an eternal impact for God. He was looking for the impact that he would have much further than in the immediate life that he was living. So let's draw a couple points of application. I think the first thing is, are you going to take your chances on what the world has to offer? And I'm not just referring to... to people who don't view themselves as Christians. This applies to Christians as well. You know, many Christians are living compromised lives. They have convenient faith. They let the world shape their values rather than God. And when you look at Lot's life, it ended in catastrophe. Or will you tell God tonight that you're prepared to completely follow him? You know, some people refer to this as the second decision. The first decision is to enter into a relationship with God in the first place by receiving Jesus' forgiveness. The second decision refers to giving your life completely to God in radical trust. You know, this is a decision that we're going to have to make. And we're going to have to think to ourselves, you know, who cares what my friends do or what they decide? I'm going to decide for myself what I'm going to do here, regardless of what they do. I'm going to make a decision tonight, right here, right now. And, you know, if you're here and you're on, on really the precipice of making this decision I want you to know that this isn't something that you should take lightly. To give your entire life over to God has implications. And um, don't do it in haste. You need to count the cost. But I'll tell you, any person who's ever done that, that I've ever talked to, has never regretted giving their entire lives over to God. You know, I don't linger on the things that I've sacrificed to follow God. Those things to me are unimportant because of all the great things that God has given to me. Most importantly, the ability to impact people eternally. And finally, one day our world will meet the fate of Sodom. Jesus in Luke 17 says this, and the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their day eating and drinking, buying and selling until the morning, Lot left Sodom. 
Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And he adds this kind of eerie statement. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. You know, one of the things you need to know is that according to God, this world is actually headed toward destruction. Things are going to come to a climax and God Himself will establish His rule here on earth. And at that point, we won't have a chance to choose for Him. But just like Sodom, God gives us a way out. He gives us a way of escape just like Lot had. And we should take it. The Bible says that God took on human flesh in the man Jesus Christ and came to earth and died to rescue us from judgment. To rescue us from the punishment He doesn't want to see happen. If you're here tonight, I would, I would urge you, take up God's offer. Okay. There you have Genesis 13 through 19. Yes, Lord, I pray that you would uh, save us from the fate of living a compromised Christian life. Uh, to me, there's just nothing worse than that. To just um, you know, pretend like we're actually living radically for you, but in reality, just living um, in a way that um, really is, is of this world. And so um, I pray that you would uh, just continually challenge us to live more radically for you. And, I, and I'm excited, too, for the, our study next week on uh, Abraham's test of faith. Uh, to see an example of that, I pray that that would encourage us to uh, strive to live more radically for you. And I pray for those of us here tonight, Lord, who uh, maybe are on the verge of making the second decision, uh, who are maybe scared to do that. I pray that they would uh, have the courage to hand their lives over to you, trusting that you're going to take care of them and that you have really the best plan in mind for their life. And uh, we thank you for anybody who committed to you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.